Action Park Media. So I handed him my bottle, and he drank down my last swallow. Then he bombed a cigarette and asked me for a light. And the night got deathly quiet, and his face lost all expression. Said, if you're gonna play the game, boy, you gotta learn to play it right. All right, everybody, welcome to Dom's Den. Uh, I got Brian Koppelman here. Uh, you guys know him, uh, creator of uh, the hit show Billions, uh, movies like Rounders, Knock Around Guys, Ocean's 13. Um, Brian, what I want to get into, your career before writing, music, in college, that experience, how, how did that happen? First of all, Dom, I'm so happy to be talking to you you know man i i think the world of you as you know and uh i just think you're such a talented guy and and such a good dude and and so you know as, as we talked about um a lot i i think that your work is is really just stellar and uh i love talking to artists who operate at such a high level so i'm, I'm thrilled to be here and that that ties in i think to it because from when i was very young i was always really interested and compelled by people whose work moved me and that's, uh, you know, like some people, like I guess many people, it was a slower awakening for me that I could do artistic work myself, but I always wanted to be engaged in the arts in some way. I loved music growing up. My father was in the music business, so I was around recording studios a lot. I was aware of what that life was, music, not the rest of show business. I didn't really understand at all, but I understood how the business of music worked. I understand how, I really understood how records were made from a very, very, very young age where I would go with my dad to the recording studio when I was six, seven years old. He would sit me on a couch and I would just hang out while they were making records. And, you know, so I'd done that for five years on and off. By the time I was even like 11 or 12, I could participate. You know, I could, I would understand what was happening in a mix. And sometimes guys would ask me, you know, uh, for fresh ears on something. So I was around it. And I guess I always figured that that's what I would do for my life. I was a record collector. I, you know, I, I loved, I was weird in one way in that I loved sports and I loved the arts. So I would, you know, play on the sports teams, but I would also, I was reading all the time. You know, I'd, I'd bring a book to basketball practice, which was a weird thing to do or on the bus <laughs> to road games. You know what I mean? I would have uh, books with me, which is odd. Uh, and now it sounds kind of eclectic and cool, but honestly, back then that wasn't really considered cool <laughs> or like something that anyone else wanted to do. You were just considered very strange. And uh, uh, in college, I, I sort of became aware, and this is a way to loop around to it. I guess in high school, I managed some local bands and I promoted concerts, just industrious, like just being kind of industrious, but more than that, I just liked being part of it. And, and, uh, but in college, as so many of our generation did, I became aware of a lot of issues of unfairness around the world. And in helping to organize a boycott of classes in protest um, against apartheid, the schools then were investing their endowments in companies that were doing business in South Africa during apartheid. And mm -hmm. we were trying to get our college to divest. As part of that, I organized an event with a few other people. Um, and in, in trying to get people to come perform at that event, which was an all-campus boycott of classes, I, I went to see Tracy Chapman. My friend Peter told me she was a great folk singer uh, around campus. And when I saw Tracy, kind of all of my interests came together and I suggested to her that she come play this, but then that we worked together and I produced her demos. And then uh, along with my dad helped get her signed and got to make that first album that had Fast Car on it. And so that led to me being in the music business, which was a great thing. Uh, as a young person, I was a heavy metal fanatic. I collected heavy metal records. I would go to every metal concert. I would get to know the people in the bands and their managers. So when I got into the record business, although by then my tastes had shifted to Bob Dylan, R.E.M., Tracy Chapman, Joan Armatrading type right. stuff, I was still very connected to that world. So I got to work with 
I didn't sign these bands. I got to work with Metallica and I got to work with Motley Crue and Faster Pussycat. And I, I got to do all this incredible metal church. I did do all this stuff in the, in the, in the heavy metal uh, world while at the same time working on the kind of artists that I um, was sort of more presently engaged with. But I mean, Metallica is one of my favorite bands of all time and getting to work with them was an incredible thing. And, And the crew meant so much to me as a kid that working with them was amazing too. And I was around them when they were making the Dr. Feelgood album. But all that time, yeah. Dom, I had this sense that I was doing the wrong thing, that I wasn't doing what I was meant to do. I, 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 All my friends were writers. The songwriters were the people I was really drawn to in the music game. I, my favorite part was talking to them about their songs, suggesting a way they could fix the chorus or that they could rearrange um, a part of it. Some, But something made me feel like, well, I'm not special. I'm not the kind of person who can actually be the artist. And then when my first kid was born, 29, about to turn 30, and I, that's when I really had the crisis of, I'm doing a job everybody would wish they could do, but I'm miserable. I'm unhappy. I don't think I can be a good father. I, I want to be the kind of dad who will tell his kids, chase your dreams, but I was not chasing my dream. And I knew deep down I had to be the one doing the thing. But... Mm-hmm. And this is the torture of being um, a frustrated artist. And, and a specific torture was I was never, I had never in my life up to that age. And I'd gone to law school at night and written a million papers. I'd never turned in a paper less than a month late. I have terrible ADHD. <laughs> so I wanted to be a writer, but I could never fucking write anything. And so it felt very fraudulent and very difficult, you know? And, I- uh, <laughs> but finally, I kind of found tools to help me. You know, I have a great partner, my wife, who always said, like, you're supposed to be doing this other stuff. Uh, my best friend, Dave, who, as you know, is my creative partner and my whole life. And uh, we, you know, he gave me An amazing he, team. He gave me. Thank you. He gave me the artist's way by Julia Cameron. I started doing morning pages. And as soon as I started doing morning pages, kind of all my excuses for why I wasn't writing fell away. And then I started writing every day and I started just figuring out how, despite the really bad ADHD, I could somehow get the work done. And that, you know, through that, David and I ended up writing our first script. Wow. Yeah, I could completely sympathize with that because I, I'm, I'm kind of at a crossroad where I've been acting for such a long time and I find myself on sets. I don't go to my trailer. I don't disappear. Um, and I just visualize how I would shoot something. Sure. And, and it happens. And it's been happening more and more and more. Unlike you, I haven't pulled that trigger yet. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should collect some sort of material try to raise some money, go out and film well, you something. You definitely should direct. So it's funny, you know, as an actor, you clearly have such an instinct of a storyteller. I was watching a scene of yours this morning. We were mixing an episode you're in of Billions. And I I, I thought, to my, like, you're, um, and you and I have talked about this, you know, because of the parts you often get to play and because of how you sound, how where you grew up, it's very easy to not understand the sort of sophistication of what you're doing as a performer and but your understanding of every beat of the scenes you play is a filmmaker's understanding and it's why you require very little direction you take direction great but you don't require a lot of direction and i totally understand how how you're a filmmaker yeah you got to find the piece of material and shoot something so that people give you a chance to then direct for sure i don't know if you guys are aware of this but it brian uh wrote that that monologue for me that i that I put up oh, last wow. uh, last summer. Is that the one that Vincent helped you with? Yeah, yeah. I I actually called Vincent uh, Vincent Donarfio when when you wrote that for me, and I wanted I did it for Vincent first, right? And I'm like, well, if Vincent gives me the okay, then uh, <laughs> I really don't care, you know. And then my second thing was I, you know, making. Uh, bringing those uh, words to life the way Brian had intended on writing them. And I was like, Brian, are you, are you cool with this? You yeah, know, I, I, mean, I, was I was like, great. are you cool with me posting this? <laughs> and, yeah, you know, 
And um, I thought there was great. Re- no one, no one ever did that for me. You know, it's not. You know, he he, Brian just sent it to me. And what was amazing is be, we had we had talked before, but there were things in that monologue that we have never discussed before. Right. Yeah. He knew. He knew what I keep inside. Yeah, that's the thing that I do. But that's what I do. Like, that's what I, know. I do. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what that's I do. Is there. That's what you... I mean, that's if you're... I mean, look, that's what actors do, right? You study people and you try... You, and it's not conscious. Like, this is the weirdest part of all that. I hadn't, like, sat down. Right? What happened was Vincent asked me to write him a monologue. And I wrote him a monologue. And uh, it was so much fun. This was at the beginning of COVID. Vincent was like, will yeah. you write a monologue for me? And I... Look, I've spent a lot of my life thinking about Vincent and his work, and I've known him uh, not well, but my amount, the amount of respect I have for Vincent, and and I've known him on and off for twenty, you know, over. Yeah, sure, I can't see it, but I because of my yeah. thing. But hold okay, on. what what is what's there? Right, that's uh, I see it now. His his book, yeah. So um, I wrote on the monologue, and it went. It was great. And we did another one. And then, yeah, when you and I were talking one day and you said, would you ever do a monologue like that for me? And I was like, I, I know just what to do. And I was like, yes. But then I didn't I didn't put a lot of thought uh, ahead of time. It's just that the way I go through life is while I'm in, as, a, as actors, while I'm in a conversation, I'm not consciously doing this. But it's part of why you become a writer, I think. It, I'm just it, aware it, it, of what's going on in the conversation on a bunch of different levels. I just have always been. That's just how I go through life. Uh, I'm aware we're having a conversation, but I'm aware of what's happening in the subtext of the conversation. And then that where that shows up is in the writing. I don't walk away and then take notes anymore or go like, well, but it's just somewhere in my fucking mind. Yeah. And then, I mean, it's part of why sometimes I'm like lost in the clouds or whatever. It's in my mind so that when I started to think about you and I wrote whatever the first line was. I was like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what this is. And I could just write it. And then you rewrite, you know, I was able to write it and I knew. I will say that's one of those times I was like, oh, this is what's going on in this fucking guy's head. And then uh, I just wrote it a couple, you know, then you go through it. Then the craft is, and the same as an actor, right, Dom? As an actor, you think about what it is, you say the words, you go through whatever your process is, you get loose. But then there's a moment where the artistic impulse, the purity, and then the awareness of the craft, those things come together. So you write a first draft. You then, if you're a professional, you set it down for a minute, walk away. Two hours later, it depends on the time, you know, next day, you look at it and you go, like, that line feels fake or that line's not funny enough, whatever. And you're just, that's the best part, right? Because now you've, you've, you've done the piece that's very pure. And then you can just, with the other part of your brain that's sort of um, the real professional crafts person, you can dive in and, and and tweak it. And it's the same way an actor can, I remember I was on a set with Malkovich once and he was doing his thing and he looked at me and he was like, are we on a set? Is, uh, are we about here? Are we here? And he was like, are you guys on a 35? Are you on a 75? You're like this, right? And he knew he, Big difference. he was able to do this and he got the exact frame line. What I'm doing is <laughs> he got the exact frame line, right? He knew what the top and bottom of the frame were when a guy shouted him what lens he was on, he was a hundred feet away, but he knew what wow. the frame was, you know? And, right. and he's like, okay, good. Because I can, and later he was like, yeah, once I knew that I knew, well, if I'm going to move my hand, I'm going to put my hand where you can see it, or I'm intentionally right. not going to put it where I can see it. That's where the crap, that's where you're marrying, yeah. right? The purely artistic impulse with the professionalism and the craft of being able to deliver. And it's constantly trying to make all that stuff happen, I think. I don't know if that's how, how you work, but I think it, it must be on some level. I mean, maybe not the lens, maybe not the specificity of the lens. No, it is actually because uh, that's why I, I always, I'll always go look at the camera and I'll always look to see where that dial is. For the reason, because the closer the camera is, the less I'm going to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. The farther it is, I, I could... I could play more, but I the closer it is, I need to convey everything more clearly by this. Yep. As opposed mm. to this, as opposed to this. I don't want to be moving around. I don't want to my I I I have uh, 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 somewhat of a of 
a locked eye line, so to speak. Well, and, and it's true that, same. in fact, and you it really only want to do when you. you're that close is really you just want to think, right? You just want to yeah. allow it to be as as real and as small because that's what it's amazing when your camera's in close, yeah. how much you can communicate with the littlest movements. Yeah, you know, that, that setup, and I would think from a, a direct, then again, I'm not in an editing room, you're in a bunch of editing rooms, and when you do that chat, it's not for the whole scene, it's just for these certain moments where you want to cut into. You need that. Yeah. So when you're doing, when, when I'm doing the scene, that's why I like to know, because I want to make sure that when the director or the editor, uh, they look... They have what they want. Oh, he raised his fucking hand. He's blocking his face or, or <laughs> something like that. It happens. Yeah, and it's um, hard to be aware of it. I mean, I, I remember when I was in Michael Clayton just knowing, and I've been on a million sets by that, made so much stuff, and I have to act in that. And, you know, I'd acted all through high school and in college, but still the first time you're on a movie set and there's a camera in your face, and I'm a, I'm a lifelong degenerate poker player, and they have me play. You know, that's why they use me to play poker. <laughs> You got some buddies in here. Yeah, that's why I'm in there to play poker, right? And still, all I, I mean, I'm, I am, and I'll say this, this is what was funny. This is why acting is so hard and why it was amazing to me. There's probably, there's almost no place in the world I feel more comfortable than when I sit down into my seat at a poker table. I have a Hold'em table. Uh, Omaha is a totally different thing. But when I sit down to play Hold'em, I have total and complete comfort. I may not win. I may not be the best player at the table. But I am as comfortable as I can be in in understanding what it is that we are doing. I know everything about text. I've read 200 books. I've played thousands of hours, right? Every part of that is natural and comfortable to me. I'm there to play poker. It's Omaha, but still it's close enough. In this movie, there's a camera on me. And suddenly the chips were like the strangest, weirdest things I'd ever held, Tom. Like, because there's a camera and I got to say these words. I mean, chips, I can riffle with, these guys play, I can riffle with both hands. I, I've, I can riffle huge stacks. That doesn't, it's the most, I, without even thinking about it. And suddenly, because George Clooney's looking at me and there's a camera, I'm like, how do I cut the checks? How do I do what? How do I look at my cards? Does somebody look at their cards? Do you look at your cards like this? Do you lift them? You know, suddenly I almost do the movie thing of lifting my cards up like some kind of thing. Because I completely forgot that I just got to sit there and play poker. Um, and so it is so hard for what you guys do is, is just so difficult to be natural. And that's why even if acting can't really be taught, right? I'm not somebody who thinks a lot of this stuff can be taught. But becoming comfortable in your own skin. You got to learn it some way. It might as well be in a class so that you can just be yourself when the fucking camera's turned on. Mm -hmm. And so that when you're got to riffle the checks, you know how, because it's just what you do. But it is weird. It's you become Ricky Bobby, not knowing what to do with your hands. <laughs> what, do I, what do I do with my hands? Yeah. I'm, I'm most comfortable. <laughs> um, it's kind of the opposite for me. I'm, I'm very uncomfortable right. in social gatherings. Um, horrible. Like horrible, but when I'm in front of a camera, it's. I've said this before. It's like my therapy, right? In a in a weird way, Brian. It's like it's like my therapy. It's where I could, I I'm able to do things that I normally have reservations about in my personal life. For instance, crying. Very. People who know me my whole life have probably never seen me cry. Right. Mm -hmm. You write a scene, I kind of wish because I it's so much buildup. You want to get it out. Yeah, sure. I want to get it out. It's weird. And, and only I really understand it. Of course. And, you know, you tell me, you're like, oh, you're crazy. You cry. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> you, you know, I, I did this, uh, this scene in Mrs. Fletcher where my dad, uh, the, the guy, uh, Bill Raymond, who played my dad, and I'm giving this eulogy. The piece of shit son. I was no good. This, he was a great man. I shot this scene six months before my dad, my actual dad, passed away. I'm sorry, and yeah. And people thought I used... My dad's 
my real dad's experience to do that scene. When it happened, when I actually shot that scene six months mm, before sure. my dad died. And when my dad died, nothing. No crying. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Don't get me wrong. It, you know. No, I know you're talking about no no moment of you didn't get give yourself the yeah. gift of that catharsis in I, real life. Yeah. You didn't give yourself yeah. the gift of of having that. I didn't release. have time to mourn him. I understand that. I I did it. I just you know, but that scene I was able to do it because I, I who knows how long I held those emotions in before that. Of course, man, that makes total yeah. sense, man. I mean, look, yeah. it's the same thing with any kind of a performing uh, someone comfortable with performance. Like, so what finally happened with, with on Michael Clayton was I realized, wait, it's not my problem. Tony cast me. It's on him. If I suck, it's not on. It's it's his problem. He's got to figure out how to make it work, and that freed me to do fine. And then I did fine in the movie. But uh, and I came in prepared. I knew my word. I knew I have to come in and know the words. If I know the words, at least I know you know really know the words. I'll be fine. Which is what I tell anybody who has to go do any kind of. They spend all the time. Know it. Fucking know it cold when you come in. But similar to you, Dom. I don't like a party. I don't like having to talk. I'm comfortable for a ten. I can talk to ten thousand people if I have to. I could literally tomorrow talk to Madison Square Garden. I would have no nerves about it. I would if I knew what I wanted to say, I could say it. Much easier for me than sort of at a party, one-to-one interactions and having to engage in that. Yeah, way. tough. That's why we chose. <laughs> we that's why we joined the circus, man. Yeah. Hmm. So I have a question. Uh, yeah, yeah, a quick question, go just ahead. for a lot of people at home that aren't in the business. You mentioned before interacting with John Malkovich. We think about the movie Rounders, obviously. When he's talking to you and the scene's not going, is he still holding that Russian accent? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, know why? Because yeah. he's not. He's not fucking crazy. Um, <laughs> so, no. He's no, but but I'll say like no, but there are people. So I'd say I've seen this more than once. Um, Often an actor who's British, but has to carry a, an American accent through the whole thing, it might just be easier for their head to right. speak in American English for the whole day. And then so when they're Damien's done, go back that. to when they're done, go back to being British because those languages are so close. But if you're doing a big accent like that, you can just take it on and off, right, Dom? <laughs> if you're doing a huge, you know, if you're if you're doing a, a Russian or a, a German accent. It's it's so far away from you that I think right. you could do it and then uncut you could go right out of it or keep it in your head then. But when you're at lunch, you're not still talking. You know, I don't think Colonel Clink at lunch was still talking in that. <laughs> no, I, I, was- I think it's just married to that scene, those spe- those specific words uh, to carry that that accent. But he does it so well. He's done it so many times. Malkovich. Yeah, he's the, he's done. Yeah, I mean, he's not like Malkovich is in billions too playing a Russian guy, and I mean, he he's been in three things of ours, and Dave and I have been friends with him for a whole career. Amazing, and he's the greatest. Yeah, and he'll just he, you could go up to him, he could do a huge Russian thing, and then you go up to him, and he's like, yeah, hi, what, what can he, what do you want to talk about? Like, no, it's <laughs> <laughs> great. Way, yeah. So you guys, you had John Dahl uh, direct John. that. Who I yeah, I loved him too. I had the pleasure of working with him on uh, on Ray Donovan. And uh, how did Rounders come about? Well, David and I wrote it, you know, in a basement. Um, Amy, my wife, cleared out this storage locker below our apartment building. Uh, and uh, it had a, a slop movie. sink in it and like a half a desk. True. I sat on the floor. Dave sat at this weird sort of half a desk. There was just a slop sink and that was it. We met two hours a day in the early morning before work. And um, wrote that script in four and a half months, revised it a little bit, sent it out. It got rejected by everybody, of course, uh, every agency. And um, and eventually, I mean, it's a whole long thing that I've just told a lot of times in a lot of places. But so if people are tuning in because they're, they've heard me speak, I don't want to tell the whole story again. I would just say we decided we had a list of directors we wanted. We weren't producers. We didn't have the authority to do this. But we knew that the movie company liked John Dahl. We loved him. And we knew he was on like a list of people they'd make a movie with. So we just found a way to get in a room with him and get him the script. And he said he'd do it. And we called them and we said, hey, we, we got John Dahl. And, and every, you know, it was great because then he said to us, you know, I want you guys on set every day. And that was really our film school because we had not gone to film school. And so 
John would talk to us about lenses and he would talk to us about staging and how to talk to an actor. And, and, you know, he wasn't talking to us all day long, but he would give us a few minutes here and there. And then he would tell us things like, take the cinematographer at lunchtime, we break for lunch, go sit next to the cinematographer and ask that guy why he does what he does. Go talk to the sound man, figure out why they do that. You know, and it was great because, because we were the writers of the movie, because we'd become friends with the actors in the movie, we taught them all poker. You know, we were treated very well and, and we came into it with a very open, curious attitude. And, um, and so we really learned a lot about how to make stuff by making that movie. And John gave us that gift, really. He could have not invited us in, and he, instead he fully invited us in. Yeah. It's awesome. It's not always the case. Yeah. But uh, he, he, was, he was a pleasure to work with, really. Well, he's very simple in his approach, right, Dom? He doesn't speak. He, he doesn't say a lot of bullshit. He's not. He just sort of tries he to. He lets you act. He does, right? He lets you act. Yeah. You know, uh, big difference. Uh, doesn't try to micromanage you. Uh, wants you to put it up on his feet. And I was I was doing uh, some really heavy material in that particular episode, and he just left me alone, man. Yeah, is that something that as you got deeper into this career, it became easier to not look for affirmation from the director to just know that if they're not coming up to you, you're in the pocket and you're getting it done. Because I know some directors will be very effusive hey that was great fucking killed it but some directors they're they're just trying to solve problems they don't want to get in your way if you're good okay that's something i don't have to worry about i'm going to go deal with this person over here i'm going to talk to them and i've had some actors i know feel like well i need a little pat on the head did it take you time to learn like learn i don't need a pat on that if they don't say shit to me i'm good or were you always yeah. okay? Yeah, but there's always yeah. In the beginning, it's you kind of like I, I need it because unlike like you, I didn't go to film school. Right. I didn't go to acting school. Um, I was like, oh shit, that I, I I'm still I'm I'm still like I even I even texted you. I'm like, how did that come out? How did that scene come out after the fact? Not when I'm actually shooting it, but um, directors each director has their own way of doing things. For instance, you see them at, cra at Crafty or you see them in the morning or you see them getting out of the makeup chair and say, hey, man, it's good stuff yesterday. Right. But they didn't tell you that. <laughs> they didn't tell you the <laughs> fucking thing when you were shooting it. Right. You know? But John, when I was shooting that scene, he would come he's like, okay. He would just give me, say, okay. Because he'd let me be. Right. I didn't move. I didn't move off that couch. Cameras, they were changing cameras, lighting. This person, you know, putting the drinks on the table. Doing. I did not move. I did not move. He did not say, hey, Dom. He kept, he kind of protected. He, he, I think what he probably said was, just, just fucking stay clear of him. Right. Work around him. How about Marty? And how does Marty give direction? Or how did he give you direction? Uh, Marty kind kind of uh, uh Marty goes uh Marty something like this so we we're, we're shooting a scene and I have a lot of the dialogue in the scene with uh Bob and Joe and he'll come up and say hey you know uh okay 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 so what what do you think Bob you think you think we'll do what three in a row four in a row. And I'm thinking to myself, hold on. Uh, De Niro doesn't have any fucking lines. <laughs> he doesn't have any lines. I have all the lines. And he'll, you know what? He didn't, he didn't give me any notes, man. Right. He, now that I think of it, he didn't give me any notes. It was just, let's go again. Let's do two in a row. Right. Let's do three in a row. And he would move it the camera, you know, whether he was on Bob or then he would move the camera in closer to you or whatever the thing was. Oh, he he wouldn't, you know, I, I the, the the scene that I'm doing with uh, Joe. It's my first day of work, big banquet hall, uh, first time meeting Joe, doing the scene with him. 
and the camera is on the tracks, comes, and then it just swings, and it's right here. And when, where's Joe? Where's Joe in that Joe, instance? Joe, Joe's like where if I was looking at right. Joe's right here. So it's coming into like three quarter on you, like a three quarter yeah. on you. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, dude, like right, right here, and I'm, you know, whatever, and I'm doing, I'm doing the scene, but I didn't know that was gonna happen. Right. <laughs> You, you know, I didn't even see it in the blind. He's probably said, you know, go, go closer. Go, go closer. <laughs> Who knows what he's doing? Because he couldn't be in the room because of the smoke machines. Right. The asthma, yeah. So he he had to be someplace else. What was Joe's energy like before you started? Joe's, Joe's everything to me, man. Like, Joe's my De Niro. Sure. You know. Yeah, he's the great. I mean, um, yeah, he's like, you know, one of the greatest of his generation, for sure. He He dropped a lot of knowledge on me he took care of me oh that's great uh he made sure that everybody knew that it's when i was doing a scene with him and bob that get the kid the chair get him a chair as well nice you know you oh know, that's a big deal chair. that's a big deal you know uh you want some food dom he had a chef you want some food um and he told me something he this is great. We're talk he's telling me about his story on JFK and <clears throat> I said, Yeah, you know, Oliver Stone, great director, Marty works some really great director. No, 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 no. Because Marty's not a director. He's a filmmaker. Hmm. <laughs> sure. And Joe, Joe has a way of conveying his message, the way he speaks. Sure. And you feel like you could talk to him for a really long time because he's really, so, he's not that guy. He's not that really right. rambunctious. He's really, I mean, I, I'm sure he has a short fuse, but when he was talking to me, it was like I was talking to this this. I always figured who, that what Chaz and De Niro got out of him in Bronx Tale at the end of that movie is the closest to who he really is. When he comes in yeah. at the end of that movie and he just talks to the kid by the casket, you know, and he just quietly, but with all of that that's knowledge it. and life, I, I always felt like, I bet you that's what that guy's like. It is, Brian. It, yeah. it, that, that, that's him. It's, it's also a guy who's very content with his career, a guy who, 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 who knows what he's accomplished, a guy who really doesn't need to do it anymore also let me just say for the record they should go back and find a way to technologically put you in bronx tale it's a shame you're not in that movie it's a crime you would have been so good in bronx tale with my first <laughs> <film>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no there's a much younger tough? version oh man that was uh, uh that was a roller coaster how old were you um i was uh 14 and how did 14? it happen I'm sure you've told it on here, but I haven't heard it. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the whole thing. Um, so it was an open call. I'm from that that neighborhood. Wait, it's an open call, so you don't know, but you're not an act. You have not acted ever. Not that. Not interested. I, 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 I wanted to play for the Yankees. You know, <laughs> I played. I was I was playing some of some of baseball, and my mom finds out from the deli guy. Her son is going to read. This one's son is going to. She goes, why don't you go read? I'm like, Ma, I have blonde hair, blue eyes. <laughs> She's like, go, go, go. I'm and you like, really, okay. are you a movie fan at this point? Always. So you'd seen Goodfellas. You knew yeah. those guys. You knew why they mattered and all I, that. I watched, I remember watching Abbott and Costello with my dad, The Three Stooges. It, movies are a very special thing for me. I get... Music can change my mood like that. I, I can listen to a song and it, it'll put me, put me someplace. That's the beauty that music has for me. When I watch a movie, Brian, I get lost. I watch a movie, I think, a lot differently than the majority of the people who I watch them with. Which could be frustrating because I'm like, shut up. I, 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 but Dom, I, all of us, I mean, that's what we do. I mean, all of us who do, I that, just, that's what we do. I mean, that's what we do, you know. I, yeah, I, I could get lost and I could watch a movie five times and learn something. 
For instance, I could watch the Godfather right now and I'll learn something new. Yeah. I'll do, I watched I'll Apocalypse. I watched Apocalypse. I did too. This week. I watched Apocalypse and there were moments in it and that absolutely I've seen that movie. I mean, I just have seen that movie so many times. And then after your tweet and you were like, oh, which one should you watch first? And I, and I was like, you should just watch the, I, I, I think someone should just watch it the same way we watched that's it. That's what I did. I, I ended up putting on the original, I right. showed the original one. I did. The original. Yeah, that's what I did. I actually watched Heart of Darkness. Yeah, that's up next. Again. Yes. And I was blown away. I mean, I, I watched that. I, and I've seen it before. Now I watched it again. And, I, and, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm studying. Now I know the story. Of course. Now I'm studying Coppola and and. Well, I was noticing when I was watching it, and we're going to get back to your story of the thing. But I was watching because this is interesting. This is how people who I was just watching Duval again after (laughs) after uh, Willard says, um, you know, you just knew he was going to come out of this thing untouched, and I was just watching the way Duval's posture worked, you know. And the way he moves and, and really it's, and I was watching it on a bunch of different levels, like him, what he was trying to convey to us, but also what he was conveying to his men. And because right that he was conveying this to his men, the way that he stood in the way that he held himself and, and, and just watching everyone reacting to him. Um, it, was amazing. it was just amazing to me. And, and there are so many of those uh, moments through, throughout the piece and and I was really struck this time. It was the first time I actually really understood that the chief really means to kill Willard after he's killed when he's bringing him down to the spear. You know, it's right. an incredible acting moment for the everybody in it. Uh, I think just blew me blew me away. Um, so so go ahead, keep 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 on with your story. Oh, good. so uh, so there's an open call. So I, I mean. Brian, everybody was coming from all the boroughs to be in this movie, Robert De Niro movie. Do you know what the part is at this point? No. Reading all, just reading all these bogus sides, all these potential roles, and, and then it started to dwindle. And originally, the part that I was reading for was uh, Nikki Four Eyes. Wait, you mean they started sending people home? Yeah, they would keep calling people back. And Within the, the same go, day or over the course of weeks? Weeks. Okay. Weeks. They would take your number uh-huh. and they would, they, you know. No and one Bob is not there at this house. point. This is just a casting person. No. Now, when I meet Bob, that's something Right, else. so what happens? Yeah, so go ahead. So, so um, it dwindles. It goes from 100 people to 75 people to 50 people. Now... They eliminated the people who could read. They eliminated the people who kind of passed the test with like these certain acting teachers that they had to like kind of filter some people. And then they said, we would like you to read, come into the city to Tribeca, uh, to De Niro's office and read for De Niro and Chaz, Chaz will be there. Now, I, I was off book. And what scene and did you read? What scene did you go read? I read the scene, uh, you know, this this 45 will go shoot an elephant and, you know, a uh, guy driving the truck and the elephant. That whole, that, I only had one scene in the movie. And so Chaz, and Chaz always tells this story. Chaz, uh... Goes, hey, you need, hey kid, you need time, you need time. De Niro's in behind them, on the phone, finishing up a phone call. Chaz meets me at the door as soon as I get in the office. Yeah, hey kid, you need time. You know, don't worry. You know, you can read it off the paper and everything. And I'm like, no, no, come on, I'm ready to go. Are you shitting bricks or are you confident? No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Not shin- well, of course, not, Chaz nothing. doesn't really mean anything yet. Like, you don't know. I'm saying to, to, after the movie, Chaz meant everything, but he doesn't mean anything yeah. yet. Right. But De Niro, I wasn't nervous even that De Niro was there. Really? Yeah. I just, I just it, it didn't, it did, the importance didn't register to That's me. That's great. 
<laughs> yeah, it worked. I wish I could do that now. Uh, and um, so he's like, uh, you know, let's do the scene. And I'm like, okay, and I'm shooting it off. And, and then he goes, you know, say what you want. Say what you want too. You know, say what's on the paper, but then also say what you want. Okay. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, yeah, it'll shoot, it'll, 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 it'll shoot the truck and the driver too. It'll fucking kill everybody. <laughs> I go home and they call my mom for permission for me to be in the movie. And I got the movie. My mom took the money that I made and made me join the union. I've said that a few times. And yeah, it's like, what? And it's like, no, you, you never know. You never know. You joined SAG right then. When it was like 400 bucks. That's you were in. That's great though. I was in. Yeah, and it wasn't until ni 1997, 98, where the location manager that worked on on a, on a Bronx Tale who was going to NYU at that time wrote a film called Kiss Me Guido. Oh, yeah, I know that film. comedy. Right, I know it. I don't remember and, it now. I remember when it came right. out and everything. And I fell in love with acting doing that film had you worked from Bronx Tale till then no I, I I would get called like a law and order here you know I don't even know who was submitting me I didn't have an agent I didn't have a manager I guess I was just a part of a list and this particular person said listen you know I can't say I could give you this part I would like you to come in and read for this part right and it was the best friend of the lead and what was the beauty about making that? And Tony, I'm I'm speaking of Tony Vitale, who who is a dear friend now. Um, the beauty of making that movie was going out every week, finding a hall, and reading for investors, oh, raising wow. our own yeah. money, and we wind up raising like five hundred thousand. I remember the whole thing. I can picture the poster. How, how old were you then? Oh, wow. Uh, 90, 96, 97. I had to be about 17 years old. So it was a few years after Bronx Tale. Yeah, quite. Yeah, yeah. Just a few years of, you know, I was doing like I did a little part in, in uh, a lot of indie movies. Sure. You know, really, really guerrilla. And uh, then this came out and I'm... At the at, at we had a, a viewing because Paramount wind up distributing the movie. I'm at the screening, and a lady from Writers and Artists, uh, Linda Kalagna, God rest her soul, she passed away. But uh, she handed me her card. Let's call me tomorrow. Oh, that's great. And I had an agent, and then it's it's one <laughs> it's one thing. It's, People ask me, how, you know, how did it happen? What, what do I need to do? Uh, and I don't have a There's no answer. No, there's no answer. Here's it's my question. When did you start telling people when they said, hey, I, I'm, I'm Pete. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a painter. I'm, 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 I'm Bobby and, and I drive I'm a truck. Actor. When did you say, yeah, I'm Dom and I'm an actor? That's what I do. <sighs> when I didn't have to do anything else, probably after The Wire. Right. Oh, not until after The Wire? Wow. Yeah. Like while you were on the wire. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, I would say, Dave, like, what do you, what do you do? I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm on a TV show. Right. <laughs> I. Uh, That's was, amazing. Yeah. So you wouldn't have answered that question. I mean, you've done so many things before the wire. You wouldn't have answered the question. I'm an actor. I had so many jobs, Brian. I, I like, I, I took every job I possibly could, knowing that I could walk away if someone said, "Hey, you have an audition." Sure. I walk. I, I mean, I've walked off jobs like you know. You're not gonna let me out. I really need to go do. Really, this. your whole I'll approach was that you had the Neil McCauley approach. You drop anything. Yeah. And I did. I've walked. I remember they were pouring concrete one time, <laughs> and they're like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I told you, I got, I got to be in Manhattan at two o'clock." No, it is true when this shit happens because also part of it is you try to distract yourself at the beginning of these careers. You try to do anything you can not to just obsess about the career part, am I gonna get the next thing or what's gonna happen? 
And I remember waiting one time, like you get, I get in weird hat, you know, so I'll start playing guitar for a while or I'll start playing a sport that I'll get upset because, because you're waiting for the phone to ring, especially back, not now, you know, not in the last long bunch of years, but early in your career, because you got the phone has to, you know, you do your work for me, I'll write a thing. And, but then you got to wait for it to get financed or, and I yeah. do remember once I devoted, I was going to this public golf course on Long Island. Um, I forget the name of it right now, but it's off Northern Boulevard. And, uh, I was going to this public golf course like every day because we were supposed to get word and I was like trying to get good. And I remember I would like go hit, you know, hundreds of balls and then on the putting green. And I literally got this call and I was like on like the 13th hole of this golf course or something. And Dave called me and he's like, hey, they're fucking green light in the movie. We're going to start pre-production. And I swear to God, dude. I fucking put the club in the bag, the bag on the shoulder, <laughs> walked off the course to my car because that was it. I was done. Yeah. I was like, that's the end. Because none of that mattered. That was just to like yeah. fucking fool myself or whatever. Well, yeah, I literally to... put the clubs in the bag and walked right off the golf course into the car. And I knew I'm not fucking, I remember saying to my wife, like, I'm not going to, these, I put them down in the garage. I was like, I'm not going to pick these up for like two years. There's like two years till I'm going to pick these up again. Wow. Well, you know, it was like, that's what I'm going, you know. I still, to this day, I'll do an audition. I'll send it out or I'll go in and, I'll, you know, I'll let a day go by. And I call the manager and then, Mike, hey, Mike, what's going on? Like, oh, you know, I uh, got a call in, waiting to see. You know, you know the spiel. And... Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So now, if I didn't get it, I want to know. I like I. Yeah, but this, you have to know. Weird, but I'll say, even though sure other guys have told you this, I want to know. But here's what you have to know: there are times that. So I'm the guy who has to make that decision, right? Me and Dave. But there are times I might not be able to be in the right head to watch the audition for this part for eight days after you do the audition. Like it literally. It might truly be eight days before I watch the audition because yeah. I'm not going to watch it in a rush. I'm not going to watch it when I can't give the actors their, the time because they put the thing in. I'm going to make sure, okay, when do we need to have this role cast by? All right, maybe the casting director, Alison Ashton, who I love, love and respect and I take her word, but still we're going to watch. If she says, like, you got to see this great. thing now, I'll go, all right, let's clear out my schedule. Well, basically, it's going to be a Sunday. I'm going to write one of, you know, someone on my team like, all right, send me the links to all the auditions. I'm going to now watch. And that might be 10 days after you did the thing. It has not, you know, and unfortunately, that's the, you're not going to be able to get that answer. And also, yeah. we might have just cast somebody who looks like you in two roles in a row, and we got to do something else for, for this part because we want someone taller than you. Or we decided to make, it just has, you know, it just has nothing to, especially when you're someone like a top professional like you are. It's just like, are they looking for that in that moment or are they looking for something else in that moment? Here's the crazy thing about this. This is how sick I am. It's not whether you, I'm, I could wait 10 days for you to tell me. It's that when I finally get the answer and the answer is no, I want to know why. That's the weird thing. Yeah, but me. you know, the weirdest thing is that is- And no one could ever answer that question. You never get a why. Well, they could answer you it. never get a why. Well, there are times you could answer it. A casting director is never going to no, answer No, a casting director is never going to answer, gonna answer no. it, right? But there are no. times that, honestly, the answer could be, I'll tell you what it often is. Somebody else came in, and they just were the version of it in my head. Yeah. They just, and they added to it. They were what was in my head. It doesn't mean they were better. They were just, they said the words in the rhythm that was in my yeah, imagination. Right. That's just magic, though. And, and often yeah. that's why you'll call somebody back, right? And you'll go, well, here's what I was thinking. Now, on the other hand, Dom, as you know, we wrote the part for you in our show and named the guy Dom. I mean, that was we wrote it for you. There was no auditioning. <laughs> we were like, we want Lombardozzi to play this. And we called you. We were like, we're sending you a thing. So yeah. that has to also happen where you know, like, all right, someone knows what I do when they reach out for me. So... That, that, it's a great, a specific it's a great feeling. I got to be honest. It's a great feeling when some like a, a person like you who runs a show, a successful show, well-oiled machine, because 
when I stepped on the set of Billions, and this is the difficult part of being a guest star yes. on a show. You better know your fucking lines. Oh, yeah. You better know your lines because chances are you're walking into something that's a weld oil machine. Everybody knows how everybody else works. You know what they don't know? What you're doing. Yeah. You have to make <laughs> decisions really quick. That's why when I worked with David when uh, the, on the last episode, probably the one that you're cutting right now. Yeah. Um, oh, when you and Constable together, yeah. Yes. So generous. Oh yeah, he's the best. And it was it was so easy. We're saying, why is this easy? Why and why haven't we worked together? We worked on something together, but we never actually physically. Worked well, he was together. on the wire also, but you guys didn't have yeah. scenes together. Yeah. Yeah, but um, it was just there. There are giving actors. There are actors who work against you. Sure. And there's actors who work with you. Our set, we really don't have actors who work against you. Our no, set, we have. You, I'm sure you've been generous. around that. Our actors are incredibly generous and beautiful to each other, and it's a really it important part of the whole thing. Is that vibe? It shouldn't. It should not be combative. You know. Yeah. The only I mean, time Damon I ever get chippy is if someone comes in unprepared because Paul's prepared and Damien's prepared and Maggie's prepared and Asia's prepared Everybody. and Costable's prepared, and so you better Daniel Breaker's prepared. You better walk on that set. Ready to fucking go. Have your words. Know the words. Uh, the rest of it, look, you could come in and have a take on the performance. That's Okay, well, come in there, though, and respect everybody enough to know the shit. Respect the, yeah. I my, my thing is always respect the person who sat down and wrote this, who had the discipline to actually sit down and, 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 well, and create this. It's also because you can find, if you know the words, and you're not stressing for the words... Well, that that's that. Then you can that, find that. the character. But look, Brando's the exception. But Brando was so loose and easy; it didn't matter. He could say any words. It doesn't matter because he's so comfortable, right? He so just embodies it that the words almost don't matter. But not everybody's Marlon Brando. <laughs> Swallow the fly. it's so good. But. These guys, uh, every, since since COVID, since we partnered up and and were doing the podcast, and they became really close to me. The my buddies, they helped me read for some auditions because that's my process. Sure, I need to hear it out loud. I need to keep running it and running it and running it. And you guys know, I need to know all the words. Once I know all the words, I could play. There's yeah. a difference between memorizing lines and knowing lines. Too big. It's a big difference. And so you're so right. When you when you come onto those sets, you have to know everything. And then, well, then they'll let you know to, how much you free. can play. That gives you the freedom. Right. It gives you the freedom. And that's where you take all the direction. Um, I want to talk about, I, I know you got to go. Um, Godfather 2, your favorite film? Yeah, I think if I if I'm if I'm if I have to pick a movie that I think is the best movie ever made, I think that's the best movie ever made. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Couldn't uh, agree more. You know, I'm, I'm I'm right there. But I mean, favorite switches around. Like The Godfather Two is not a really great time. You know, if it's like my favorite, my favorite movie is probably a, you know some kind of Coen Brothers movie or a Quentin movie or a Spike Lee movie where. It's like a little funnier also while it's yeah. super intense. But I mean, I've watched The Godfather 2 more than any other movie. Um, you know, I, because as a storyteller, that movie's a miraculous thing. I don't even understand how, look, we're talking about Apocalypse. I mean, what Francis Ford Coppola did, as many times as people want to talk about it, I mean, what he did making those movies, The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather 2, an apocalypse now it's kind of like an unequaled thing in a way it's insanity and uh every part of those movies is is just mm -hmm. you can't understand how it's achieved that yeah. godfather 2 though i look at that scene the scene i watch over and over is you know michael and fredo the banana daiquiri scene you know michael and fredo outside <laughs> in the cafe yeah and when you look at 
the way Pacino plays that scene, the way he's studying Fredo, you miss that. The first 10 times you watch it, you miss the thing that that's interrogation scene. That scene is an interrogation scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't play it so that it's obvious to Fredo it's an interrogation scene. But that's an interrogation scene. He is oh, yeah. watching Fredo's every reaction to everything he says. And Fredo's confession of guilt is when he says, why didn't we do this more? That's Fredo's confession of guilt yeah. is why couldn't we been like this? That's, go ahead. What, what, what? That's I, I think the beauty of it is that Fredo's the only person in the movie who doesn't know he's being interrogated all the time That's by funny. Michael. Right. But <laughs> yeah, I think like, all the time. I think the average viewer does not understand watching that movie most of the time that that's an interrogation scene, for instance. Mm-hmm. It's two brothers connecting. You don't understand that the whole reason he has Fredo bring the two million is so that they're all there. You know, mm-hmm. it's just perfectly constructed. It's an amazingly Amazing. constructed um, Why did we do more things like this before? Well, it's also beautifully <laughs> yeah. shot. But if you notice, everybody who had who's full of sin, yes, the, the way they they lit usually black. Well, Gordon Willis, all that top lighting stuff. Yeah, yeah I mean, Gordon yeah. Willis, like, is was obviously another master, and and I mean, all the President's Men. It's you know another one of the movies I've watched the most Brain in my movie. life. Yeah. Like, I've watched that movie just you know, really, it's hard to even tell you how many times. Gordon Willis also shot that, you know. Oh. I I I I think movies from 66, 67 to 78 before Star Wars. Uh, why? You know, he's got to go there. No, but, there are, but I'm going to disagree because I'm going to say I understand your point, but I'm going to say there are a lot of movies now that are uh, fantastic. Look, Shawshank. Yeah, but look at Bastards. I mean, for me, Bastards oh, is as yeah. good a movie as you can make. Hell's yeah. And, yeah. So good. you know, I would say that's, I, I can make the argument that that's my favorite movie. Again, I don't think it's better. I love Quentin. Quentin, obviously, uh, I'm sure you heard my podcast with him. Yeah. Quentin and I are, you know, uh, I'm always careful saying friends, but obviously I know Quentin and we uh, have some mutual respect. I'm, uh, he's a hero to me creatively as an artist. Bastards is arguably my favorite movie. The Coen Brothers movies, like I could tell you seven of those movies that yeah. are like my favorite movie because favorite depends on the state of mind you're in at a mm-hmm. given at a given moment. Um, where, and also see, I'll say also, like I was thinking yesterday, and this is the way movie freaks talk, but I was thinking about character introductions and I was thinking, there's this scene in Charlie Wilson's War with John Slattery and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, yeah, I know. When they have that argument that ends in Philip Seymour Hoffman breaking the thing. That is one of the greatest scenes in the history of cinema of just two guys going at each other. And was you... What's he, he call him? An infant? Yeah, the whole thing. You're gravely, you gravely... I am never, ever sick at sea. Right? You know? And that scene... Uh, and let's talk about the many ways in which you're a douchebag, right? That scene, yeah. which he says, that scene for me, like I could watch that scene a hundred times um, because the writing, the acting, the directing, every single, the way Slattery flicks, the way Flat- Slattery flicks, flicks his fucking cigarette. Yeah. Every single thing in that scene is just immaculate. It's just perfect. Um, and that movie's not perfect. Like I don't love... I can't go watch that movie over and over again. But I sp- have I spot check that movie. Like I watch that movie sometimes. Yeah. Like because that's I want to see. That's kind of how I feel about the master because the movie itself isn't amazing entirely. But those scenes between Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman, those dialogue scenes back and forth, and they're talking about just but drinking. I, see, I think that movie's a master. <laughs> I think that movie's a masterpiece. I Do think you really? It's a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. I think I it, for me, I, think I saw that movie thing. in the theater the day it came out, and. Um, Think it's PTA's favorite film that he's that movie, made. The Master, destroyed me. I walked around the city for just hours and hours, lost, and yeah, uh, that movie destroyed <laughs> me, man. I mean, my lately my favorite PTA movie um, is the one. What's the title, guys? Uh, with there, the, there'll be blood. No, I mean I love that. No, it's the one with Daniel Day Lewis uh, making the clothes. Uh, the Taylor. Oh, the Taylor. Oh, yeah. yeah. Taylor. No, it's called something else. I just am literally blanking on the title Is right now. Is it the last one he did? No, two movies ago. Uh, it's Daniel oh. Day-Lewis, and um, it's just the Suppo- most beautiful movie. Supposedly Daniel Day-Lewis' last film, right? Yeah, Before perhaps. He said he was going to retire. Uh, yeah. but, um, but I think The Master is incredible. But I know what you mean. That Yes, you can watch certain scenes in, in that movie. I think The Master is hard to watch because it's so disturbing. Like, I understand why. Yeah. 
you say that, it's just because to go through all that is like just yes. very unfun. It's a punishing, punishing, like Tree yeah, of is. Life. Like I love Tree of Life, the Terrence Malick movie, but I don't like that's one of my favorite experiences of seeing a movie in a theater. But I won't. I watched that movie one time. One time, yeah. I don't, don't want to put myself through that experience. Maybe I watched yeah, this tough movie. Was yeah. it Phantom Pred? Yeah, that's the Phantom one. Phantom Pred. Yeah, movie. yeah. Guys, we're good. Yeah. Uh, and with that, Brian Compliment, people. This was Brian, great fun. Thank you so much, man. All the best. I hope to see you soon. You Thanks, too. Brian. I'll let you know about that audition in three weeks. Don't worry about it. All right, bye. <laughs> she comes bye. and goes. <laughs> Goodbye, Ruby Tuesday. Who could hang a name on you when you change with Why she needs to be so free